so if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to get them open uh, because we are going to be all over the place tonight. I just wanted to preface this evening with a couple of thoughts, uh, some books that I would recommend. If, if tonight sort of uh, maybe uh, piques your interest a little bit, uh, I wanted to just make available some things that, that I've, uh, some resources. One is a, a, a book on the, uh, kind of a commentary, but not really in the book of Revelation, one of the toughest books in the Bible to interpret, a guy named Richard Bauckham does a phenomenal job. If you want to come up and check these out afterwards, uh, a book called Surprised by Hope uh, by a guy named N.T. Wright, and there's a little um, pamphlet, two-page little deal that I'm going to reference here uh, in in, uh, this teaching uh, called Farewell to the Rapture by N.T. Wright. So uh, if you're interested in any of those, uh, I would highly recommend. They're they're good reads, and we'll kind of uh, tap into what we're going to talk about tonight. So we're in a series, this is the last night of a series called Everything Will Change. We've been working out the implications of Easter, uh, Easter being one uh, event in the church calendar that happened five weeks ago or so, and quite possibly the most important date in the entire church calendar for anyone who follows Jesus. Jesus dies on a Roman cross, and three days later he is resurrected, i.e. not dead anymore. He was dead, and now he's not, which is... Awesome. I mean, great news for those who, uh, who, who follow Jesus. So I want to begin with a question tonight, and the question is this. The song we just listened to, I'll Fly Away, is this an accurate biblical perspective of what will happen after we die? Because we've been talking about resurrection, and we've been working out the implications of resurrection. So we've talked about uh, how it affects how we spend our money. We talked about how it affects uh, how we do relationships, our past, uh, the present, like who we are as the church, and tonight, the future. So does this song give us an accurate understanding of what the Bible says about life after death? And if so, where does resurrection fit into that equation? I'll fly away. Where does resurrection fit into that? If not, then what does a biblical view of the afterlife look like? What is going to happen, according to the scriptures, after we die? Uh, is there biblical evidence for it? Can we find it? And is it contained in this kind of theology of I'll fly away? Um, <clears throat> what is heaven? Uh, and, and how does resurrection fit into this? If, if, there, if I'll fly away is not a very biblical understanding of it, then what is? Uh, so this is where we're headed tonight. And uh, th- this could be um, the first time I've gone on record to really work this out biblically. And so I'm really, really excited and I'm really, really nervous at the same time because while I think I've got this right, um, man, you, 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 you do not approach this kind of stuff with flippant attitude. Uh, I do so with fear and intrepidation that God have mercy on me. I pray that I'm getting close to what you meant when you said this in its original context because that's what we're after. So I've titled, uh, entitled tonight's message, I'll Fly Away or Maybe Not. Uh, because it's my conviction that this idea of I'll fly away is in fact a very inaccurate view of what the Bible tells us about the afterlife. Uh, and, And in fact, furthermore, I think it does a really good job of minimizing what is the most important part of Jesus' work on the cross, which is his resurrection. Uh, so all of those uh, old gospel hymns that you love to sing, uh, if you're one of those folks who loves those kinds of things, then I'm really sorry for what's about to happen. Because while many of them are great musically, thank you Johnny Cash, um, some of them lack in theological... Uh, uh, um, 
And you could build a case that many of the you know, modern-day worship songs lack some theology as well. I'm not trying to bash you know, one or the other, but I'm just saying this particular thing, which is common in you know, sort of gospel hymns, uh, I, I'm, gonna, I'm about to blow up. So saddle up. Here we go. Are you ready? <laughs> you look a little nervous. Okay. Uh, I want to tackle this whole thing with three, with three questions tonight. And the first question is this. Where does this whole I'll fly away kind of theology even come from? Is it biblical? And if it is biblical, if it's there, how do we understand it in a different context if that's not really what it's saying? Um, many, I would sort of maybe sum this idea up in um, uh, um, possibly a particular book series that was written by an anonymous duo of authors um, called Left Behind. Uh, so this whole idea of left behind and sort of this disembodied evacuation type of theology, where does it come from and is it biblical? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 if you would. We're going to start there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is Paul, and he's talking to the church in Thessalonica, and he's doing so in the context of hard times and persecution, and he's encouraging them. He wants to give them a word of encouragement, and so he talks a little bit about you know, working hard so that your daily life will win the respect of others around you in, in about chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 12. And then in verse 13, he says, what is commonly connected to or connected with this idea of left behind theology or this I'll fly away kind of idea of heaven being somewhere else and us being uh, taken there. All right. And he says this, brothers, we do not want to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. What he means is those who are dead uh, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that what we are still, are we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he says, those who are dead in Christ, okay, um, Jesus will come back for them. And he says, for those of you who are not dead yet, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with trumpet, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, if you read this passage and you stop there, it is absolutely 100% viable to believe that somehow there will be some sort of we're here and then God's going to take us and meet us in the air and something is going to happen. If that's all you read. If you connect that with something else that Paul says about when you are dead or when you're, like, you're not present in the body anymore, you're immediately present with God, with Christ. So if you connect some things that have been said in Scripture, it's very easy to understand why you might think that this is how it's going to go down after we die. We have to. We must always Read the biblical authors in their original context, because if we don't, we run the risk of being led far afield from what they originally intended to say, which is exactly what I think has happened in this case. 
Is it possible that Paul, the apostle, was tapping into not only something cultural in the first century that the people who heard it first would have understood and had at the forefront of their minds, as well as something theological? Is it possible that while Paul says this, and here's the words we get translated from Greek, he's actually tapping into something, a story, a narrative, where the people who would have heard it first would have began to fill in the blanks? So is it possible that Paul doesn't give us the entire picture here? Is that, a, is that a plausible possibility in literature? Just think about literature outside of the Bible. Is it plausible that an author might lead you as a reader into some story and not give you the whole picture because he knows that you already know the story? Is that possible? Absolutely. Okay? Do we have any other biblical evidence of something like this, where a biblical author taps into a cultural narrative that the people who heard it first would have said, Aha! Whereas you and I go, What? I want to direct direct us to a couple of possibilities. Turn to the book of Acts, if you will. Acts chapter 4. And while you do, let me tell you about a guy named Ethelbert Stauffer. You can't make this stuff up. I mentioned this guy in a series we did in Advent. Ethelbert Stauffer was a historian and a theologian, and he studied the coins of the Roman Empire. Why would anyone study the coins of the Roman Empire? Lucky you. I'm going to tell you why. Ethelbert Stauffer studied the coins of the Roman Empire to find out, to get at, what is the ethos, the DNA, the, the things, the unspoken like, realities and truths that people believed and thought about in the Roman Empire. Because if you print it on your money and you empirically, or the imperialistic uh, you know, powers that be, disseminate throughout the empire this message, or these messages, this is the kind of way that people... Uh, 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 who are in power disseminate information. Think about what Hitler did with some of the propaganda. Okay, that's a negative version of what happens here. So if you study the the coins in the Roman Empire, you get an idea as to who and what the Roman Empire really believes. You still with me? Here's what he found. One, salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. On some of the coins in the Roman Empire, you have these phrases. One of them would be, Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. Two, there is no other name given to men by which you can be saved. Three, Caesar is Lord. Four, uh, in 6 BC, they found uh, there was a saying inscribed around the empire, and it went like this. Augustus has been sent to us a savior. The birthday of the god Augustus, because the Romans believed that uh, it was called the, the, the imperial cult, that these, go- these emperors were then deified and they worshipped them as gods. So Augustus has been sent to us a savior. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel, which translated in Greek is evangelion. Sound familiar to anybody? So this is what Ethelbert, our good friend Ethelbert, found in the Roman coins. Now... Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 12. What does it say? Somebody read it out loud, just with gusto, because it's just slam dunk on my point. Who's got it? Somebody read it out loud. Yeah, go for it. exactly what Ethelbert found when he studied the Roman coins. So Peter steals 
a common phrase from culture that the Roman Empire is pushing down the throats and, and of the people that they suppress, and he steals it, and he co-ops it, and he subverts the empire, and he says, no, actually, there is no other name upon which men can be saved, and that name is Jesus. Amen and amen. He goes on in Acts 10, and he says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is what? Lord of all. Romans 10, Paul says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is what? Lord, then you will be saved. His, you know, right in the face of Caesar, 1 Corinthians, he says, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and whom we live, because the Roman Empire was trying to tell the people that peace and prosperity and the good news, the evangelion of the gospel, came through Rome and by Rome. Paul says, no, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things came and whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. He says this in Colossians. He says it in Ephesians. So here we have a couple of examples of somebody, an author, who takes a common narrative in culture and subverts it and injects it with new meaning. If Peter is tapping into this, and Paul does it in other places, we have very good grounds to say that it's possible that Paul is doing exactly that in 1 Thessalonians. Is that the case? Amen and amen. I think that is exactly what Paul is doing on three different levels. Here's one. Paul is a Jew. He's speaking to a church which is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles who would have known at least somewhat the story of Israel. What's the most important story in the Israel's history? The Exodus. Who is the, 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 the main character in the Exodus? Come on, everybody. Moses. What happens when Moses goes up on the mountain? Thunder. A loud voice comes from heaven, and Moses comes down from the mountain to see what's happened in his absence. Does this sound anything like Jesus? Paul says that a loud thunder, or uh, trumpets will call a, a voice from heaven, and, and, and Jesus will come down from heaven and meet us. That's Torah. That's Moses. That's Israel's history. Number one. Number two, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is one of the greatest chapters in all of prophetic and apocalyptic literature. And in it, we get for the first time this idea of the Son of Man. The Son of Man language is used over and over and over in the, in the Gospels, especially by Matthew. And he associates it with Jesus. So Jesus, for the Gospel writers, is this, uh, this Son of Man who has authority to judge and who is coming to vindicate in Daniel chapter 7. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, he also says that... Uh, the people of the saints most high, okay? So the people of the saints most high, who's the most high? The son of man, who's the son of man? Okay, you're with me. He says the people of the saints most high are vindicated over their pagan enemies and what happens to them when they're vindicated is they are raised up to sit with him in glory. Does that sound anything like First Thessalonians? Yes. The metaphor and the Son of Man language that's applied to Jesus in the Gospels, Paul now takes and he gives it to the church in Thessalonica, who is being persecuted, who has a, has a special interest in vindication. And what will happen when they're vindicated, when, as they follow Jesus? They will be caught up in the air and they will sit with him in glory, which is a direct connection to Daniel chapter 7, because that's exactly what happens in that literature. 
And if you're a Jew and you're a part of the church of the New Testament, you would have understood and you would have known Daniel chapter 7. And so the fact that Paul taps into it is actually quite brilliant. Third and most importantly, if you're a Roman emperor and you have conquered a city and you have made it a Roman province or a colony, you would often go around the empire and visit these colonies and provinces. Now, when you showed up at a colony or a province, does anyone have a wild guess at what kind of instruments might be played? We could play that one all night long because when the emperor shows up, trumpets are played, loud voices are called, and what happens? The people of the city march out into the country where they meet the emperor who has conquered the province that they live in, and what happens? They're carried off to a far distant land. No, that is not what happens. Actually, what happens is the people of the city and the province, whom Rome is now occupying and the, the victor of or the, the, the ruler of, take the king and they march him right back into the city. So Paul, in First Thessalonians, when Jesus returns... Jesus has conquered death. He has conquered the world. And just like you would in the Roman Empire, walk out into the middle of the country and meet the king, the emperor, the one who you bow a knee to and usher him back into his kingdom, that is exactly what you will do when Jesus comes back. To further uphold this point, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. I'll fly away is not the biblical understanding of what's going to happen after we die. We will not be evacuated. There will not be a disembodied evacuation of all of the people who are in Christ to another place forever and ever. That's not biblical. What is biblical? Revelation chapter 21 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Aha, Micah, we've got you. The first earth has passed away. It's going to be done away with. Actually, a biblical understanding of the word that's used there is not destruction and annihilation, but actually a reforming and a reshaping and a redeeming. So the old earth, the first earth and the first heaven have passed away, and there is no longer, because what happens when you reshape creation is that there is no longer any sea. Now, you might say, what in the world does the sea have to do with any of that? Well, actually, in biblical author, in the biblical uh, literature, the sea is often a metaphor for that which is evil. So the sea represents everything that is evil and not right about God's creation. And so when the new, when creation, when heaven and earth or or heaven comes to earth, what's going to happen? The sea will be no more. So when the first earth and heaven and earth pass away, there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city... The new Jerusalem, which is the city of God, which is essentially to say the place in which God's glory exists in its fullness. This thing, this holy city, this symbol of God's glory and his righteousness and his holiness, the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven where? It's not a knock-knock joke, folks. Here. The biblical vision is not us leaving and going somewhere else, but actually God's holy city, which is a symbol for God's justice and his righteousness and his purity and his holiness and everything that is good about him, comes here 
and heaven and earth. Heaven, not being a physical location per se, but the place, the, the, the reality in which God's rule and reign come here. Interestingly, he uses the metaphor of marriage. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There's a new deal in town, and it's not included in it. Not included in it is a disembodied evacuation where we go somewhere else, but actually where God's plan, God's hopes and dreams for creation, God's kingdom, heaven, comes here, and God redeems, reclaims, and restores all that which was good in the first place. So good, man. Brilliant. Added to that, he says, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with with them, which is an echo. So John, the writer of Revelation, is echoing an Old Testament understanding of what would happen when God chose Israel. Over and over we hear from God, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will make my dwelling with you. Think of the tabernacle. Think of the cloud of fire or the, the pillar of fire in the clouds. Think of the the temple in Jerusalem in the Holy of Holies where God's actual presence, the Shekinah glory of God, rested. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Who was that? Belinda Carlisle? Was that that her? You know, one of those 80s rockers. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Actually got it right because there was a place on earth where heaven existed. And by heaven, I don't mean somewhere else. I mean the place in which God's glory is and there was a place, and it was called the Holy of Holies. What John and the biblical authors are saying is that it's not just, heaven will not just be a place on earth anymore, but heaven will subsume earth just like it did in the beginning of the story. If you start in Genesis 1 and you read 1 and 2 and you read Revelation 21, you get a pretty good picture of where it started and where it's headed. So the bottom line is, I'll fly away or left behind or disembodied evacuation does not do the biblical text justice, nor does it do the original author's intent justice. And furthermore, it does not take into account the most significant part of Jesus' work, because without resurrection, you have nothing. Without Jesus' resurrection from death, you have a would-be crucified Messiah who ended up just like all the rest of them, dead. Where death has the final word and death has the, wins the battle and decay and all that comes with it is what wins out in the end. If you don't have resurrection, what we have is useless words. Religion is what we have. But good news, we have resurrection, and so something is different about this story. That's why I get so excited about this stuff, because, gang, it's going to be incredible. And it is incredible because of resurrection. So, first and foremost, where does our flyaway come from? That's the primary text, and that's my take on it. 
Number two, what does resurrection affirm in relation to life after death? So if we're talking about resurrection, what is the actual act, the physical reality that Jesus comes up out of the grave? What does that affirm about life after death? I have a couple of thoughts on that. Surprise, surprise. Turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. This is Jesus. He sees, he's, he's, he's been resurrected from the dead, and he sees a bunch of different people. I'm going to highlight a few of them. John chapter 20. He sees Mary, starting in verse about 10. I'm just going to summarize. Mary sees Jesus. She doesn't know who he is. She thinks he's the gardener. And finally, when Jesus says her name, she realizes that it's him. And she says, Rabboni, which means rabbi or teacher. And she, she what? What does she do? What does Mary do when Jesus calls her name? She embraces him. When's the last time you embraced a ghost? When's the last time you embraced a non-physical human being? I'm guessing never. That's exactly it. You don't hug something that isn't physical. You don't embrace something that's not real. Now, you could say, well, maybe that's just Matthew's take on it or or John's take on it, and he's just trying to tell us something, but that's not actually what happened. Well, let's keep going. Uh, John chapter 21. This is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible because Peter, the guy who denied Jesus three times, Jesus meets him. He's out fishing with his friends because that's what he knew what to do. So he goes fishing. Jesus sees them. He's on the shore. Jesus sees them, and Peter recognizes that it's Jesus. He jumps out of the boat, swims to Jesus while his friends paddled right next to him. That had to have been really awesome to watch. And what does Jesus do for them when they get on shore? Huh? He asks them if they want any breakfast. When's the last time you saw a ghost eat something? Doesn't happen. In order to eat something, and the gospel writer says that after they had finished eating, I'm guessing they all had food. When's the last time that you saw a ghost eat fish? Probably never. Luke chapter 24. uh, To the left, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke chapter 24. The great story of the road to Emmaus. Jesus is walking on the road, and his disciples, he walks with two of them, and they don't recognize him, which throws a little bit of a wrench into our resurrection plan because this is physical. This is what I'm trying to say. What does resurrection affirm about life, life after death? It's physical. Um, the fact that they didn't recognize him, the fact that Mary didn't recognize him, the fact that when he showed up on the road to Emmaus, they walked the entire road with him, walking, talking, and he walks with me, and he talks with me. Maybe that's where that came from. Um, But they don't recognize him. They get afterwards, and and they go, oh, when he breaks bread with them, they go, oh, it was him all along, and were our hearts not burning inside of us? They finally get that it's him. So something about our resurrected bodies will be transformed to the point at which those who know Jesus the best still had a hard time believing that it was him. He goes through a wall, which may be part of the whole divine piece of Jesus' deal. (laughs) I thought that was funnier than you did. But he says in verse 38 of chapter 24, why are you troubled? (laughs) Why are we troubled, Jesus? Because you were dead, you just walked through a wall, and now you're here. Um, 
People don't just resurrect from the dead every Saturday. So pardon us for being a little bent out of shape here. But uh, uh, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. Jesus lets them touch him. Physically, they touch him and realize that it's in fact him. To, to further prove the point, he says in verse 40, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still not, did not believe him, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? Because let me tell you, resurrection works up a ferocious appetite. I mean, rising from the dead is just like, oh, I'm famished. Can somebody give me uh, some fish and chips? And so, and it says, the gospel writer says, And he gave them a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. As if to say, let me show you, let me prove to you, what I'm talking about here is not some disembodied reality, but it is a physical reality. Jesus dies on a cross, he pays for the sins of the world, and he experiences what we should experience, which is death, and the forsaking of God, and the breaking of relationship with the Father. But then, in victory over death and sin, Jesus comes up out of the grave on the other side of death, and the gospel writers do much to tell us that Jesus' reality, his life-after-death experience, is one that is physical, flesh and bone, sweat and blood, earth and dirt, fish and chips, Physical. Resurrection affirms this world and this creation, the one that God gives us and calls home for us. Resurrection does not do away with it. Resurrection does not annihilate it. Resurrection does not burn it up. Literally, it's a metaphor. Resurrection affirms this world and this creation. And it announces in the midst of this broken world that we live in, Right in the middle of it, bursting forth in and through it, is new creation, which is at the heart of what resurrection is all about. This is what Paul's trying to get at when he says, if you are in Christ, new creation. So it announces not only that resurrection or that that death does not win, that life wins, but resurrection announces that a new creation is bursting forth right in the middle of this one. And Jesus is the first fruit of that new creation. He's the first sign of it. What we see in Jesus is what we will see of everyone who is in Christ. It's not that hard to get. And it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's the gospel. And Paul says anyone who is in Christ were buried with him in baptism and raised to be disembodied and evacuated elsewhere. No, raised to walk, talk, love, experience, flesh and bone, sweat and blood, earth and dirt, embrace and kiss and drink and food and all of it in a new paradigm, through a new lens, through a new body, through a redeemed creation that the Spirit of God has now indwelled in you and in me who are in Christ. Resurrection affirms the good and beautiful aspects of God's creation and declares that they will not be discarded, but in fact they will be experienced to their fullest in God's new creation when Jesus returns, i.e. Thessalonians. He will usher into, Jesus will usher into the physical, flesh and bone, sweat and blood, earth and dirt, 
the fullness of God's kingdom, the fullness of God's glory, the, the, the Shekinah, the presence of God. That's what Jesus will usher into this world that we live in. Which means, for you and for me, good news. We can participate in the physical world that we live in. All of the most wonderful, beautiful, amazing things that you have ever experienced in life where you have said to yourself, my God, you are so good. They don't leave us. They're not going to be annihilated. They're not going to be discarded. But in fact, they will be exponentially bolstered, if you could say that. They will be infused with with, with, with the fullness of what God intended when he created us, because now we experience those things in part. We experience those things, as Paul says, where we are one and two. We are new, and yet we are fighting this old man and new man. And so we experience those things, the physical things around us, in part. And in God's new creation, oh, it's going to be unbelievable. This world Good beer and good wine and good food and embrace and kiss and relationships and wonder and art and creativity and beauty and awe. We don't have to deny those things. We don't have to sidestep them. We don't have to say, no, we're actually just a passing through. We're going somewhere else. No, we experience them now here in real time with a new paradigm through a new lens, one that says, this is just a foretaste of what is coming and man, it's going to be good. Amen. This is, by the way, why I think a lot of people have problems with Christians. <laughs> people that are outside of the church, because when they look in, it's, it's no this, no that, no fun, no drinking, no dancing, no flavor, no laughter, no, no, and no. When actually, I think resurrection says yes to all of those things, and yes, 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 to dancing, to fun, to laughter, to good drink, to family, to friends, to creation, to art, to beauty, to everything we see around us that's good and beautiful. Resurrection says, yes, that's part of what I intended, and it's going to be even better. So if Christians would get on the ball and not be so... I think that we would... When's the last time you heard a non-believer look at a church and a Christian and say, now they know how to live? Anybody ever been indicted of that travesty? Like those Christians, man, they, they just know how to experience life. They just suck everything out of it like it's a gift from God. You know, these guys, I want to, they get it. When's the last time the church was indicted of that? Probably not ever, okay? Um, now, Time out. There's a lot of things that we could go into the nuances of what Paul says in Romans like 14 about the weak and the strong and the brothers and what you eat and what you drink and all those things. And we need to, we need to experience, we need, we need to, we need to live and, and experience these things that God created as good and beautiful and wonderful in the context of relationship. And sometimes that gets a little, you know, uh, tricky. 
And what Paul says in Romans 14, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, is all about what does it mean to do this together as a community? Because we do so in the process and in the presence of neighbor. We do it in the presence of other. And so we have to take into account what that looks like. And so for the sake of other, sometimes we may need to say, you know what, I'm not going to participate in that. Even though I'm free to, Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation in Christ. You're free in Christ. Galatians, even though I'm free to do that, I'm not going to. So hear me out on that one, okay? What does resurrection affirm in relation to the afterlife? Physical. Post-resurrection. Okay, the time between death, when you die, and when Jesus comes back and, and, and ushers into this world the fullness of his creation, that time in between those two things, call it whatever you want. Okay? You'll be in the presence of God but your body will be awaiting resurrection. And when your body is resurrected, it will be redeemed and restored and made new, just like Jesus' body was resurrected. So the time in between, what we typically call heaven and then add eternity to, it's just not biblical. Last and not least, what is our role in God's new world? This is maybe going a little longer than normal, but this is, I think, really important stuff. What's our role in God's new world? So if, if I'll fly away, this kind of disembodied evacuation idea and understanding of 1 Thessalonians is, is maybe not the best. And, and, and resurrection actually affirms physicality and, and resurrection, like of the body. Then what's our role in God's new world? Revelation chapter 22, if you would. Revelation 22, starting in verse... Three says, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no need of light, of, or the light of lamp, or the light of sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. If you go back in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28 to 30, God's call and, and, and challenge to Adam and Eve was to rule the creation that they lived in, to actively participate and engage with the world God made them, to, to garden it, to, to, to tend to it, to do all of those things, and to actively participate in it. It's not a, a passive thing. So what will our role be in new creation? I think it will look very similar to what Excuse me, God said to Adam and Eve in the beginning, participate, tend, garden, you know, like maybe not garden because that was all agriculture and now we've got buildings and all this kind of stuff. So, uh, but it will be an active one where God actively engages us because the scriptures say that we will rule with God. We will have an active participation in God's kingdom, the rule and reign of God, which has now subsumed all of creation. And you and I who are in Christ will be a part of that, and we will rule and reign with Christ. That's what the scriptures tell us. It says that we will see his face. Uh, how do you know somebody? When you, when you think about, oh yeah, I know that person, what do you see? What, if, if, you, if you could sum up like the essence of a person, right? It's this. It's their eyes. 
which many say are the window to the soul, which may not be biblical, but is pretty accurate. When you see someone's face, that's the essence of who they are. And what the scriptures tell us about the other side of resurrection is that when we will be, because what has happened all throughout the scriptures so far, no one can see the face of God, right? You can only see the backside of him as he passes by because his glory is so magnificent, but in new creation, in new... New humanity, we will see God's face. We will know him in his fullness. We will be connected to the very source of our created, our creation. We will have a relationship. We will know him in full, and we will be present with him. Heavens to Betsy, that's going to be fantastic. Can you imagine being... The relationship that you have, or the relationships that you have, This is why the marital relationship is so foundational to what it means to understand who God is. Because in a moment when a man and a woman are united, there is this intimate knowledge of one another that goes beyond any other relationship that you will ever experience in life. And I I believe that in that moment, which is why sex is so powerful and so amazing and such a gift from God, because we get a glimpse of what it means to be known and to know another and in new creation on the other side of resurrection we will know the god who made us in an exponentially more and deeper way than that small window of a relationship lets us into on this side it's going to be incredible it's going to be amazing so why should you follow jesus not because you get to go to heaven after you die, but because the God who created the world loves it, wants to, and has done something to redeem it, to restore it, to reclaim it, and he invites anyone in Christ to participate in what he dreamt of, what he hoped for, what, what makes him just gush with joy about creation. God says, that's what I have for you in Christ, and that's what I will have for you in new creation on the other side of resurrection. <sighs> wow. As, l- let me just close with this. This, I think, at least to some degree, where we've been tonight, is the biblical picture of life after death. It was inaugurated by Christ and his resurrection from dead, It will be experienced as it was experienced for Jesus, for all of humanity who is in Christ upon our death. It affirms the physical world that God made, and it assumes the transformation and redemption of our bodies and this world, and will be an active participation in the ruling and reigning of God in a world that is so far beyond your wildest imagination and infinitely better than anything you could ever describe. Heaven and earth will once and for all be one, will inhabit the same space, and God's hopes and dreams for creation and humanity will exist once again. That is why resurrection matters. And that is why everything changes when Jesus comes out of the grave. Because there is a new story, and it's one that says death does not win, sin does not win, destruction does not win, but life wins, and the God who made it all wants it back, and he's made a way for it to be possible. And anyone who is in Christ, blessings on you, because what you will experience is way more, farther and and bigger than you could ever dream, imagine, or, or 
conjure up in your mind. What you will experience is what God wants and desired and hoped for and dreamt of when he started this whole thing in the beginning. Resurrection. Let me pray. God, I gotta take a knee here. Uh, it seems totally unbelievable. It seems like this uh, this is bigger and better and deeper than any anything we could ever conjure up, any fairy tale or story. It's like the best story we've ever heard on steroids. It's it's like, oh, maybe it is the essence. It's the genesis. It is the inspiration for every story we've ever heard where our heart leapt and said, yes, that's what I long for. Because as we hear those stories, what it actually is tapped into is the biggest story ever told, which is you who created a good and beautiful world which was taken hostage by sin and evil and destruction, but a God who has made a way for the hero to come and save and redeem and restore and call back. It's the most amazing story ever. It's the most amazing truth ever. God, would you make that so... uh, palpable and uh, real in our hearts. God, for those who have said yes to Christ, may this be the inspiration for us giving reason for the hope that we have in you. May this, this idea of resurrection and new creation be, be what pushes us out into the world to say you will not believe what has happened to my life. And God, for those who are yet to be in Christ, for those who have yet to say, Jesus, I trust you for what I cannot do on my own, Would you just draw them in by your spirit? Would you pursue them and just hunt them down? Your relentless love and your passion, God, may it be known in their hearts. Help us to be the kind of church and community that is about resurrection because it has changed everything. We worship you, God, because you are the God of resurrection and of rescue and of hope.